This is episode 11 of the Bible Schooled podcast, the show that helps you think well about the scriptures. I'm your host, Ian Brown, and welcome back to the show. Uh, Today, in keeping with our goal of thinking well about the Bible, um, we're talking about knowing what kind of literature you're reading when we're reading the Bible, because what you're reading determines how you read it. This is called literary context. And right now we are just going to take a quick 30,000 foot view survey of that. Uh, So let me give you an example about literary context. You would read a book like Aesop's Fables in a radically different way than you would read the United States Constitution. You'd read a love note from your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse much differently than you would read an email from your boss. What you're reading always determines how you read it. I think uh, Tremper Longman was the one who said it this way in one of his books, genre triggers reading strategy. Genre triggers reading strategy. And this is something we mostly do intuitively, right? We know a Stephen King novel is a work of fiction, And so we would read that differently than, say, the front page of the New York Times or whatever. You know, the differences are very obvious to us because of the time and place in which we live, and we read accordingly. But when it comes to the Bible, sometimes the genre of what we're reading isn't so intuitively discerned. And I feel like I beat this drum all the time on this podcast, but it's okay. I don't mind beating the dead horse because it's important. It's important to realize that we uh, we look at the Bible and it's important that we understand that it was written in a time and place that is not our own, right? It's written in languages and it's written from within cultures that are completely foreign to us. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible isn't written for us. It doesn't mean that we can't look to the Bible for guidance and for spiritual sustenance. We absolutely can, and we should be doing that for that matter. But it does mean, however, that we can't always intuitively discern the genre of literature that we're reading, much less the overall historic and cultural context of what we're reading in the Bible. And it'll take some work to become literally proficient in our engagement with the scriptures. Remember, and if you've been through Bible school, they drill this into you, but the number one rule for Bible interpretation is context, context, context. Context is king. And there are different kinds of context. Uh, Historical and cultural context is something that we've already kind of talked about on this podcast, so you might be familiar with that already, but literary context is something we should strive to understand too, because there are so many different kinds of literature in the Bible, and they read differently. They read differently. Genre triggers reading strategy, and uh, they're not always the same as our contemporary English literary conventions. So real quick, let me give you just a breakdown of the different literary genres in the Bible. You have narrative, law, poetry, wisdom, uh, prophecy, gospel, epistle, and apocalypse. Uh, 
And depending on where you look, some people might add categories, some people might have uh, less categories, but this is basically what you get in the Bible. Narrative, law, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, gospel, epistle, and apocalypse. And uh, there is some overlap with our own modern English genres. Like we have narrative in English, we have law and poetry, obviously, but we don't really have prophecy and uh, we don't have apocalypse. So there's overlap, but there are also great differences. And the trick is rightly perceiving what type of genre you are reading and then abiding by the interpretive rules of that genre. Here's an example. In Psalm 17:8, David prays that God would hide him in the shadow of his wings. Now we understand that the Psalms are poetry. So this is a metaphor. We aren't meant to think that God has wings like literally like a bird or something. We have to abide by the interpretive rules of the genre of poetry. David is using imagery to convey an idea, a truth about God's protection. That's the nature of the literature. That one is fairly obvious in regards to how we should read it, but where things get hinky is when genres start to overlap. Like sometimes the prophetic literature will have very poetic language in it, and sometimes there are subgenres, so it breaks down even further, like with narrative. Is it historical narrative? Or is the story meant to be taken as a parable? Or is it a combination of those things? That happens too. So on and on, the snowball rolls down the hill, but this is the Bible. This is how the Bible functions. This is how the Bible behaves. It's not always as straightforward as we might want it to be sometimes, and it takes some effort to dig into the dyad of historic and literary context in order to rightly understand and interpret what the Bible is saying. Now, I said that very intentionally, the dyad of historic and literary context, because those two things really have to be looked at in tandem to inform our reading. Well, okay, I say that, but actually the overall theological context of the Bible is worth mentioning too, meaning like the grand themes of the Bible, estrangement from God through sin, uh, atonement, redemption, reconciliation with God. These are the big overarching themes of the Bible, and they actually kind of create a contextual background unto itself. So maybe it's more of a triad, a triad of historic, uh, literary, and biblical theological context that needs to be looked at in order to inform our reading. That, yeah, that's probably a more uh, complete way to think about it. Now that Now that I'm talking about it out loud, that's definitely a more way a more complete way to, to think about it, a, a triad of historic, literary, and biblical theological context needs to be looked at in order to inform our reading of the Bible. But, but anyway, to illustrate all of this, I thought it would be a fun idea to look at the book of Jonah. Now, I picked the book of Jonah for a few reasons. One, it's so recognizable. Two, it's short, like short enough to at least get our hands around in this episode. It's only about 48 verses long. And number three, the book of Jonah is sophisticated. 
The Book of Jonah is a very sophisticated piece of literature, and almost deceptively so. And I say that uh, Jonah is almost deceptively sophisticated because it's so famous for being a Sunday school staple to the point where a lot of Christians, as we get older, we seem to just regulate it to a flannel graph children's lesson about how running away from God is pointless and we might as well just obey or else we'll get swallowed by a big fish, right? I know for me growing up in church all my life, going into adulthood, this is how I thought about the book of Jonah. But it's actually so much more than just that. It goes so much deeper. I kind of like to think about the book of Jonah as a play in four acts. And this is where looking at literary context comes into play. And Jonah really illustrates this well, because I think the most important context to consider when we read Jonah is the literary context. Why do I say this? Because again, genre triggers reading strategy. Now, how do we determine what genre we are reading? Well, like I said earlier, genre is perceived, and it's perceived usually by picking up on clues or signals from the author. For instance, the subject line of an email you receive from your boss that reads presentation notes, that's a signal for you that will help inform your reception of what you're about to read. Another example, you go to a bookstore and you pick up a book that says novel on the title page. That's a signal. Or looking at the Bible, Song of Solomon. The genre of that book is signaled to us very clearly. Or if you go to the New Testament and you look at uh, Paul's letters and you see the epistle of Paul to the church at Ephesus, that is a very clear signal of the type of genre that you're about to read. Now, when it comes to the book of Jonah, it's not as straightforward as all of that. The first signal we get, or the first literary clue about what it is that we're reading, is where the book is located. Jonah is part of the Nevi'im. Remember, the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, is made up of three different groups. The Torah, which is the law, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketuvim, or the writings. And Jonah goes into that second category, uh, second category, right? He's part of the book of the 12, or you might know it as the 12 minor prophets. So this book is a piece of the prophetic literature. But unlike uh, the rest of the book of the 12, unlike the other 12 minor prophets, which are uh, collections of each prophet's words and messages from God with maybe some narrative mixed in here and there. The book of Jonah is actually just one complete narrative. This is our second signal regarding the book of Jonah. It's a prophetic book, but it's also a story. And you can see how things start to narrow here because you know Jonah really has more in common with the stories of the prophets in 1st and 2nd Samuel in 1st and 2nd Kings than it does with like Amos or Joel or Hosea or one of those guys. So we understand that we have to pay attention to things like uh, characters and plot and literary devices like irony and imagery and foreshadowing, symbolism, and all the good things that come with a story. You might be thinking here, wait a minute, 
I thought the book of Jonah was supposed to be like a depiction of factual historical events that we're supposed to read literally. And you're talking about reading it as a novel or reading it like a fiction. Well, yes, yes, I am. I'm going to argue that a faithful reading of Jonah means to read it like a piece of literature, such as a novel and not like a history textbook, because that is what the genre calls for. Now, don't pick up the rocks to stone me just yet because I'm going to explain my position and I think it's a pretty good position. But first, since I'm kind of already making a muck of the more fundamentalist way of uh, looking at things, this is probably going to be the best time to tell you that we don't actually know for sure who wrote the book of Jonah or when it was written. I know most of us, uh, we like we we tend to assume for whatever reason that you know the the name of the book is the name of the author and it's not always true sometimes it is true but it's not always true and it's not true of Jonah we don't know who wrote Jonah we don't know exactly when the book of Jonah was written what we do have is like a, an approximate estimation of when the book was written uh, most scholars classify this book as being post-exilic. They say this because of the way it was written with the words and the language, the grammar, and also because of uh, the overall themes of the book. Most scholars classify it as being written post-exile. Remember, the Jews were carried off into exile into Babylon in, uh, around the 6th century B.C., and they returned back to the land in the year 539. So think of that as kind of one bookend of our estimated time of the book of Jonah's writing. The other bookend would be the year 190, because the book of Jonah is mentioned in another book called Ecclesiasticus, which is not to be confused with Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiasticus was written in 190 BC. So the book of Jonah was written post-exile in the Jewish community sometime between the 5th and 2nd centuries BC. This would preclude the actual prophet Jonah from being the author because Jonah lived in the 8th century BC. And we know this from 2 Kings, where Jonah makes a brief cameo during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel from uh, 786 to 746. So there was a real Jonah, okay? You can kind of start breathing your sigh of relief here. Uh, there was a real, literal, physical prophet named Jonah. I'm not saying that Jonah was just made up by some guy in Jerusalem after the exile, there was a real literal uh, prophet named Jonah. So let me explain my position. I believe that the author of the book of Jonah wrote a book less concerned about giving a precise historic account of events and more concerned about telling us a story based on the real life of the prophet. Right to me, this is just the way it reads. This is, this is how it signals. 
It, it's what makes Jonah unique among the prophetic books. All of these other books in the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Minor Prophets, they list specific dates and they have the names of different kings that situate them in very clear historical context. And Jonah doesn't have any of that, which is why I take the position that I do. It does not mean Jonah isn't historic. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was no big fish. I'm not saying that. I believe that there's historic value in the book of Jonah. But again, my point is that the author is less interested in a historically accurate depiction of events and more interested in telling us a theologically significant story that has its roots in history. So this is why I'm contending for the superiority of reading Jonah as literature first instead of reading it like you would your history textbook back in high school. This way, you can still pick up on all the literary clues that the author wants us to pick up on and not miss out on the theological richness of the story. So right now, let me just take a second to sip my tea, and then we will take a brief look at the story of Jonah and talk about some of the big theological themes. You know, the problem with having a cup of hot tea when you're recording a podcast is that it gets cold by the time you take a sip of it. It's very disappointing. But anyway, all right, the book of Jonah, we are going to start with the character, the main character, the man himself, the prophet Jonah. As I mentioned earlier, Jonah makes a brief cameo in 2 Kings that I'm going to read. This is 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labohamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So here we have the prophet Jonah prophesying that this wicked, evil king is going to win a battle and restore all this land for Israel. Now, if you're reading 2 Kings as a Jew of antiquity, you don't like King Jeroboam II. Or you don't like the first Jeroboam, for that matter, either. But Jeroboam II, he's an idolatrous king. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jonah prophesies something good about his reign. Now, there's not a particular reason to doubt Jonah's prophecy about Jeroboam restoring the boundaries of Israel as being genuine. I think it's a genuine word from the Lord spoken through Jonah. However, things get interesting when you read the book of Amos. Amos is a contemporary of Jonah. He's prophesying around the same time uh, during Jeroboam II's reign. And Amos actually prophesies that Jeroboam is going to lose the land that he just won back because of his wickedness, because he's such an evil king. So uh, Jonah prophesies that Jeroboam II is going to uh, win and restore all this land, and it happens. And then Amos comes along 
and he prophesies that Jeroboam is going to lose the land that he just won back. So with that backdrop, if you're an ancient Jew, you maybe aren't so sure about this Jonah guy. Jonah's prophecy kind of fosters this notion in the nation of Israel that we're God's people, we're Yahweh's people, and he's always going to be on our side, even if we're kind of off doing our own thing, even if we're off worshiping other gods and not paying attention to our God. So Jonah would have been associated with fostering this kind of attitude that the prophet Amos has to walk back later. Right? Yahweh's always on our side. No matter what we do, we're his people, and he will always fight against our enemies. This is the kind of, you know, for God and country nationalistic thinking that Jonah, son of Amittai, represents. How ironic is it then that in the book of Jonah, God calls him to go to a foreign land and prophesy to Israel's enemies? It's very ironic. And that's actually another signal or another context clue about this book's genre. So Jonah's a prophet. That's our first signal, right? This is uh, part of the prophetic literature. Jonah is also a narrative or a story. That's our second signal. And now, as we're getting into the book, there's this very pronounced sense of irony used throughout it. And I am actually going to now argue that the book of Jonah is almost like a satire. Satire uses humor, exaggeration, and irony to subvert an audience's expectations in order to make a serious point. And this happens throughout the book of Jonah, and it starts right away. So Jonah 1.1 kicks us off, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, this is the the standard language for prophetic literature. So if you're an ancient reader looking at this for the first time, you're like, okay, I know what this book is, right? Because it starts off like every other prophetic book. But it continues, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, now this is where Jonah diverges from the other prophetic books and our expectations as readers get subverted. Verse 3 of Jonah 1 says, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So this is completely not what a prophet should be doing. I'm kind of thinking about Hosea right now. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Hosea. And God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And then later, when Hosea's wife cheats on him, predictably, God tells Hosea to go find her and bring her back home and reconcile with her. Hosea's marriage is meant to be a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel, but it's kind of a wild illustration. And it just shows us the kind of crazy things that God asks his prophets to do. And Hosea doesn't even bat an eye. He just obeys because that's what a good prophet does. They just obey. So the fact that Jonah disobeys, that would have been bonkers to the original audience. He takes a course of action that as a reader, we don't see coming. We're expecting the prophet of God to just obey, but Jonah 
does he goes the opposite direction. It's a huge subversion of our expectations. As a reader, we don't see it coming. And if we go on reading here in this first chapter, we'd see other indicators that we're in the realm of prophetic satire. Besides the subversion of expectation, things like personification and hyperbole. Now, my apologies for taking you back to English class real quick, but hyperbole is the use of exaggeration to make a point. And you can see this all throughout the book of Jonah. Nineveh is a great city. The Lord sends a great wind that causes such a violent storm. The men greatly fear the Lord, and the Lord sends a huge fish. Remember, Jonah's only 48 verses long. Okay, this is a lot of hyperbolic language for such a short story, which tells us that we're in the realm of the genre of satire. Also, the author takes human characteristics and applies them to inanimate objects. This is what personification means. So uh, the ship that Jonah's on threatens to break up and the sea is enraged. The sea is angry. Okay, these are all characteristics of a very stylized story instead of a precise historical account. These are all context clues. These are signals. The author wants to present this story on a very big, a very grand scale. And the lack of historical dates and names other than Jonah, Jonah is actually the only person who's named in this story, uh, that combined with the fact that God wants Jonah to go outside of Israel to Assyria, essentially, to the city of Nineveh, that gives this story a very big picture feel, a very universal flavor. So hopefully you're starting to see how carefully crafted and stylized and sophisticated this book is. One more thing that kind of solidifies that is how this book is structured. You know, our Bibles have it divided into four chapters. And I mentioned earlier how I like to think of Jonah as a play in four acts. So there are these four scenes. You know, first you have Jonah running away from God in chapter one. Then Jonah and the big fish in chapter two. Jonah preaching to the Ninevites in chapter 3, and then Jonah's dialogue with God in chapter 4. So this book, is, this book is very sophisticated, very structured, very stylized, and incredibly well written. And again, I just want to emphasize this does not mean there's no historic value in the book of Jonah. I believe it certainly has its roots in the real life of the prophet. But on the same token, we do a disservice, I think, to the text if we don't read it in the way the writer presents it. We're being invited by the author to unearth big theological ideas and truths embedded into this story. And we do this by picking up on the literary clues that the biblical writer has left for us. And that means that reading it like literature. It requires us to read it like literature. So uh, what are some of these big theological ideas that the author wants us to pick up on? I think the first one is this. I think the first one is this idea of Jonah voluntarily exiling himself from the land 
when he runs away from God. Now, the land, the the land, the promised land, this is considered sacred space for God's people. And leaving it is always pretty much presented as a bad idea. It never ends well. Remember, Jonah is written post-exile. The exile was a huge deal. Sometimes I don't think we emphasize it enough when we study the Bible, but the exile was absolutely devastating. It was a huge moment for the people of Israel, for the Jews, absolutely devastating physically and spiritually. So the fact that Jonah would exile himself from the sacred space of the promised land rather than obey God cues us on to the fact that something is extremely off about this prophet. This is also signaled by the fact that the scripture says Jonah goes down. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa. That's that's very intentional. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down below the deck of the ship. He gets tossed overboard and sinks down into the depths of the sea. He even finds himself in Sheol at one point, which is the realm of the dead in chapter 2. But then it says God brings Jonah up from the pit. Okay, this is all very, very significant, very intentional. Down is always a signal for going uh, further away from God's presence. And up always signals coming closer to God. So very intentional. The second big theological idea I want to point out is about the sea and the great fish. Now, most of the time when you read about the sea in scripture, it's meant to evoke the ideas and the feelings of chaos and judgment. You get this idea in Genesis 1.1, where the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep before God says, let there be light. It's like God is surveying, surveying the chaos before he speaks and brings order to it. And this is common throughout the literature of the ancient Near East. And in the Bible, we can see other examples of this in passages like Genesis 7, 11 through 14. We see this in Exodus 14, Job 26, 12, and Psalm 74. You also have to understand that a calm sea or overcoming the monsters in the sea means that you're experiencing the peace and the favor of the Lord. So, Rough seas and sea monsters mean chaos and judgment, and the absence of those things means peace and favor. So if you're an ancient Jew reading Jonah, this is where your mind is going. You're making these associations. The seas are enraged, and everything is chaos because God is judging Jonah's disobedience. And Jonah knows this. He understands it, which is why he tells the pagan sailors to throw him overboard. They're reluctant to do it at first, but they finally toss him into the open sea. And this is where the next subversion of the reader's expectation happens. God appoints a great fish. The Hebrew here is Daggadol. And this would have been thought of basically as a sea monster. And the ancient reader would have expected it to be the agent of God's judgment to destroy Jonah. But the sea monster, the big fish, doesn't eat Jonah and destroy him like the reader might expect. The big fish swallows Jonah and preserves his life. This would have been absolutely wild 
in the eyes of an ancient reader. It's a complete subversion of our expectations. The story is being built up to the climax of God's judgment on Jonah for disobeying. But God doesn't meet Jonah with judgment. He meets Jonah with mercy. That's the second big theological idea about the book of Jonah. The third big theological idea from Jonah is that the prophet's actions are meant to be contrasted with the actions of everyone else. Think about this. The wind and the waves obey Yahweh, but Jonah doesn't. When the sailors cast lots to find out who's responsible for the storm, the lot obeys God even though Jonah disobeyed. The pagan sailors obey the Lord and fear him and even worship the God of Israel by offering a sacrifice, but Jonah stays in disobedience. The big fish obeys the Lord by swallowing Jonah at the appointed time and spitting him out at the appointed time. The Ninevites repent and worship God after Jonah preaches to them. The plant or the vine in chapter 4 obeys the Lord by growing and dying at the correct times. The worm obeys God by attacking the plant in chapter 4. God sends a scorching east wind that works with the hot sun to blaze on Jonah's head. Everything and everyone acts in obedience to God except for God's prophet. This is very ironic. This is part of the satirical nature of the book. It's kind of humorous that the ones you would expect to be in opposition to God are not, and the one guy you expect to obey God runs away in rebellion. To miss this would be to miss a huge part of the book's agenda, which is to show how great God's mercy is. Now, if you really want to understand how great God's mercy is and why Jonah doesn't want to obey God and go to Nineveh, you have to understand who the Ninevites were. As a kid, I used to wonder, who were the Ninevites? You know, why doesn't Jonah like them? Why doesn't he want to go preach to them? Well, Nineveh was the capital city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were actually the ones who eventually overtook the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off into captivity. Remember, after Solomon, the kingdom splits in two, Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Judah gets carried off into exile by the Babylonians. But before that, the Assyrians came in and took the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrians were particularly known for their brutality. They ran the most violent conquest driven show in town, the most violent conquest-driven empire the world had ever seen up to that point. In fact, historians look at the way that they waged war and are still like, my goodness, at the brutality. Now, there's actually something you can Google called the Lakish Reliefs. That's um, L-A-C-H-I-S-H, the Lakish uh, Reliefs. So the Assyrians had these things called palace reliefs, which were like art pieces sculpted into thin slabs of alabaster that were displayed in the palace. So Nineveh, which was the capital of the empire, it's uh, close to modern day Mosul in Iraq. Um, and when they were excavating the ancient palace there, they found all these reliefs or these wall carvings. And one of them is called the Lakish Relief. And this relief depicts a battle the Assyrians won over the kingdom of Judah at the town of Lachish. 
And you can actually read about this one in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 32, where Sennacherib, king of Assyria, lays siege to Lachish. And if you look on Google at some of the images of the Lachish reliefs, you can see the Assyrians laying siege to the walls. You can see them impaling people, even skinning people alive with knives. Just absolutely brutal, horrific stuff. So these are the people who God is telling Jonah to go and preach to. So it might make a little bit more sense why Jonah doesn't want to go. And we might even be sympathetic to how Jonah feels. Shoot, we might have even gone the opposite direction ourselves if we were in Jonah's position, to be honest. You know, to put it in more modern terms, imagine God telling a black man in 1963 to go to a KKK rally and preach and tell all the Klansmen to repent. Or imagine God telling a Jew in 1943 to go to Berlin and to preach and to tell the Nazis to repent. What's happening to Jonah is that level, right? This is how great and staggering God's mercy is. Listen to what God tells Jonah in chapter 4. Actually, it's so short, I'm just going to read the whole thing. This is after the Ninevites have repented due to Jonah's preaching and they've returned their hearts to Yahweh. It says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So dramatic. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn... The next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Again, so dramatic. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, Though you did not tend to it, tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I always just appreciated that last part, that God was actually concerned about the animals of the city too. Um, but anyway, just a couple of fun facts here. Jonah actually quotes two other prophets in this chapter. Verse 2, the part about how God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, is a direct quote from Joel uh, 2.14. And also, uh, anytime Jonah tells God that he wants to die, he's kind of echoing the prophet Elijah, who said something similar to God when Jezebel was threatening his life. So those are just a couple of interesting observations. But getting back to it, uh, think about this. Think about how much Jonah's distaste for the Ninevites would have resonated with the Jewish readers. 
Yet the Ninevites repent. Israel's enemies repent and turn to God, but God's prophet remains angry and rebellious at heart. You know, part of Israel's purpose, we see this in the promises God makes to Abraham. Part of their purpose is to be the means by which God blesses the other nations and peoples of the world. And this sounds really great in theory, but it can get really tricky when God wants to bless and save your enemies. What happens? How should the people of God act when God wants to redeem and bless the people who have hurt and abused them? The book of Jonah grapples with that in a very beautiful and in a very large scale way. God's not telling Jonah just to go forgive the guy who stole his tunic the other day. He's telling Jonah to go to preach to a city, to a people group who have brutalized his own people. There's a geopolitical, ethnic, racial flavor to Jonah's distaste and his elitism. Yet God wants to give the Ninevites a chance, just in case they decide to repent and throw themselves onto his mercy. This is kind of getting to the heart of the book. The author wants his readers to understand that we should want the wicked, the hateful, the brutal, abusive people of the world to experience God's mercy. This is another reason why the book of Jonah is so brilliant, because when we read it, the irony and the satire work. It wins us over, and we look at Jonah and say, this poor idiot sitting there mad at God, getting a sunburn and wanting to die. We feel superior to that hypocrite until we realize that the Holy Spirit is using this story as a mirror to expose what's inside of us. Because a lot of us are like Jonah. We look at someone and think, God, you can't be serious. You can't be serious. This person, you're going to save this person or these people. They're evil. They need to be brought to justice, not be given mercy. But the book of Jonah asks us, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel like you're entitled to God's blessings? Why do you feel like you're in the privileged position to experience God's mercy? But they aren't. Why do you feel that way? Last time I checked, we were all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. And this is part of the great irony in Jonah, that whether we are pagans or prophets, we all rebel. Okay, one more big theological idea about the book of Jonah before we wrap this episode up. Jonah is meant to be contrasted with Jesus. The book of Jonah kind of ends on a cliffhanger. God tells Jonah, why shouldn't I have compassion on these people? They don't even know their right hand from their left. And Jonah is just kind of left stewing there in anger. And that's the last we hear about Jonah until Jesus mentions him in Matthew 12, where he says of himself that one greater than Jonah is here. And I feel like that's one of the great understatements of the Bible, that Jesus is greater than Jonah. Because think about this. Think about these contrasts. Jonah goes down to Joppa in rebellion, but Jesus leaves heaven and comes down to earth in the incarnation as an act of obedience to the Father. Jonah boards the ship and goes down below deck in rebellion to God, but Jesus goes to the cross and goes down to the grave in obedience to the Father. Jonah is rebellious, hypocritical, and full of sin, 
yet God shows him mercy and spares his life. Jesus was perfect and sinless, yet he was made to be sin, and he died like a sinner in order to deliver us. Jonah hates the people that he was sent to, but God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus, the incarnation of that love. And the last contrast I'm going to mention, Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish and figuratively arose from the watery chaos, foreshadowing the resurrection of Messiah. But Jesus literally physically died, and he spent three days in the belly of the earth. But on that third day, he got up, and he became the substance of that foreshadowing in Jonah. So these are some of the big theological ideas This isn't an exhaustive study on the book. Rather, I've just tried to use the triad of historic, literary, and biblical context to highlight some of the big theological ideas that I believe get to the heart of this book. When we think about Jonah being thrown into the sea and being swallowed by the big fish, we should think of the rebellious prophet being thrown into and being swallowed up in God's mercy. When we think about Jonah, we should think about how God loves the world even the wicked, evil, abusive people among us. God sees those kinds of people as not even knowing their right hand from their left. And by the end of Jonah, we should realize God's mercy is more vast than the sea. God's heart of mercy is depthless, and it can swallow up wicked pagans and rebellious prophets alike. That's the heart of the book of Jonah's message. Those are the big theological ideas that open the book up and we unearth them. We discover them because we read it the way the author intended for us to read it, according to its genre. Genre triggers reading strategy. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope this episode has blessed you. If it has, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor and leave a five-star review on iTunes and the Apple Podcasts app. If you like to listen on another platform, maybe you can follow or rate me there, whatever that platform offers. As always, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcasts. That way you never miss an episode.